lot of that structure, like I've brought out about the Chicago area, is that you know you would have the Jesuit Catholic churches working in conjunction with the governments um, for that supply chain. So, you know, first you'd have the you know occultic abuse and programming happening within the Catholic Church and between them and the military. You know, you really have those connections where. Our military is working with the church, and uh, the government is working with the church for that supply chain in communities. So, um, you know, they would um, supply the kids. They would, you know, these girls or boys would be basically prostituted out uh, from the church to military law enforcement in the communities. Um, which would cause damage. You know, some of these programs were so, you know, are so intense and horrific. What did it do? It mentally broke uh, these children. Welcome to the Days of Noah podcast, where we talk all things biblical, supernatural, and strange. Today we conclude our conversation with Jesse Zaboder. And in this one, we are going to start out talking about the architecture of desecration, the ways in which occultists and Luciferians and Satanists and those that partner with them build their occultic structures, the orientation of buildings in a city, and how that furthers their dark agenda. We touch a little bit on deep underground military bases, occult rituals, uh, hidden in plain sight, children being used and seen as assets and commodities, treated like property, the Luciferian Brotherhood, and then in the latter portion, we get deep into spiritual discernment and walking with Christ in a deeper level with greater authority, with greater understanding. And Jessie really just shares her heart of that knowledge of walking with God after all she's been through. So I know you guys are going to be deeply uh, encouraged and informed and edified by this, this second half of our conversation. So please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform and tell others about the show. And in addition, just take a moment to click a five-star rating for the show or leave a quick comment or a review. And those things really do help to grow the channel as it gets it seen by more and more people so we can help more people uh, be edified and also bless them by uh, talking about these important topics. And with that, let's continue our conversation with Jesse. You know, 
you know, there's some interesting stories as you look into Frank Lloyd Wright and his connection uh, with that, you know, same last name as some of our politicians have. And, um, you know, at one point, Frank Lloyd Wright ran uh, with with that woman um, who was, you know, connected to that. And uh, they ran with a one-year-old that wasn't theirs. And the system tracked and hunted them down. And when they brought them back, um, it cost that woman and her children their lives. And they made up some bogus story about a servant that killed them all. Um, but people in the system knew that wasn't true. And, you know, we're told that wasn't true. And we're told, you know, that it dealt with, you know, the covering of Nazis and uh, Nazi heirs that were in our country. So, um, you know, I can testify too that Frank Lloyd Wright was one of the main architects that they chose uh, to build specific designs according to, you know, how they wanted, um, you know, I guess, how would we put it? Um, when you go into any city, if you're a higher level brotherhood, you can look at, you know, the city sigil, you can look at the welcoming board to see who all the brotherhood in that area are. You can look at the building structures and from those structures, you can know, you know, where are you going to go for food? Where are you going to go for lodging? Where are you going to go if you want to engage in prostitution or sexual things uh, with children? Where would you go for cannibalism? Uh, where would you go for rituals? So the structure designs are important because it, it, they use it as a means to communicate with each other. So Frank Lloyd Wright was one of their approved um, architects who, you know, back in, I think it, it was earlier when um, they asked him to build up the Chicago area and the Wisconsin areas. So, you know, some of my family lines were part of those seven financial backers of the system who paid him to build up those areas. Hmm. And is there something to certain shapes that they'll use? Cause I've heard about like the trapezoid as an unfinished uh, pyramid is an invitation for demonic spirits. I don't know if he used trap trapezoids in any of his architecture. You do have, yeah, you have a lot of hidden symbols within that. Um, I do a great coaching um, course on kingdom living with jesse.com. You can look for the land assignment one and two, but I really go through, I break down some of those things. Like how can you know what certain symbols mean? Yeah. Uh, we will look at building structures. Um, we've been doing a lot with, you know, which, uh, with lately, which, uh, buildings have spiritual gates. How do you, you know, know what that building is used for? If it's just a gate, that goes from point A to B to C to D, or if it's, you know, a spiritual gate that is also used as a temple. Uh, so yeah, I break down a lot of those, but yes, he used a lot of those symbols, a lot of the hidden occultic meanings, uh, angles. Hmm. Um, uh, have you visited, have you gone on that tour? In, in that weird, creepy place, House on the Rock. I had, I had been there, yes, as a kid. So we we went a few years ago, um, and 
you know, first hour, it take it took us like three hours and we weren't going too slow either. And the first hour or so was like, wow, look at this, look at that. You know, after a while, you're just like, I just want to get out of here. It's dark, dank, dusty, creepy. I mean, I would never go back. I don't know if that has any connection because that I obviously I think came along as a tourist attraction, that part of it, maybe much later, although it's on the grounds, but. Yeah, it's very creepy there. <laughs> I think instead of tourists, we should use the word profit. It's, yeah, you know, they like to find ways to profit, um, make money on the in the places where they do evil things. So yeah, that became one of their ways that they profit. Are you familiar at all with um, like Dr. Laura Sanger talking about spiritual mapping and understanding the, the four, four main areas of defilement on a land? And that can carry spiritual reverberations. You know, you have like broken covenants and and bloodshed and these different things. Um, I just wondered if you had any thoughts on how that connects to some of these areas that seem to be dedicated towards very idolatrous things. Yeah, you do. Uh, You have the desecration of the land. Um, You know, in my land assignment course, I get into... um, you know, how they take God's structure and design and they defile it. Um, Everything that God designed is based off of the sevenfold Holy Spirit. Um, You know, the first way they've kind of defiled that is, you know, they've taken that base universal pattern that the Lord created, you know, which is kind of modeled off the sevenfold menorah. So you have, you know, the seven lights that transposes to, you know, universally our planetary, you know, it looks like the solar system universally. But when you're looking at it individually, you know, you've got up at top, it, it also represents your spiritual armor. So you have, you know, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith, your belt of truth, and then the two feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Well, that very structure is how they began to build up the above ground map, uh, which then became their identifiers for what was below ground. So within every 15 mile radius, they would put three churches in a triangular formation. Um, It was very specifically strategically planned. Uh, That first church that they would build they would build on a wellspring, hmm. giving them direct access to that water. And what would they do? They would desecrate the water, um, meaning that usually, you know, there would be something dead or, you know, that they would put at that wellspring. And what that did then was, you know, as that wellspring flowed out to the other areas, it, it would cause that overall desecration and stop up the movement of the Holy Spirit. Well, the other two, you know, represented, the other two churches represented where the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith were to be. And then, you know, in the middle of that triangle where the breastplate of righteousness was supposed to be, they would build an underground shared catacomb or they would put a graveyard and they would, you know, put the dead there. So what that would do is that would, you know, desecrate the entire land. Hmm. And, you know, they would rotate rituals then in that 15 mile radius 
Um, but at the heart of that, that root, the land was desecrated and unclean. Where, where and, were these th- these three specific churches that you're referring to? Um, they do this um, this pattern over okay. and over throughout the world. Okay. So you've got it, you know, in my land assignment courses when I teach people how to begin to tear up strongholds in your area. I, you know, encourage them look for those three churches that form a triangle within that 15 mile radius. And from there you begin to identify and map out, um, you know, according to their above ground, you know, everything followed a a pattern for them. That's fascinating. So as you begin to look for things, you can figure out what's below ground based on the above ground markers. Uh, do they also take advantage of like ley lines and different interconnectedness that way? Yes. So, you know, that water, um, that head spring, uh, usually always is connected to one of the major, um, ley line intersections in that area. Wow. Yeah. You know, when you were talking about the well springs, I couldn't help thinking again, another Batman reference, the more recent movies that is, um, the first one, Batman Begins, they poison the water, right? Yes. And bring chaos that way and people losing their minds and, and fear, basically. Yeah. Wow. Um, so deep underground military bases, you've talked about in Chicago. What, what does Wisconsin have, Madison, you know, that you're aware of? Madison is one of the highest levels uh, where you have a lot of high-level Luciferians who have retired. Uh, That kind of became one of their central hubs uh, because you could easily access a lot of the ritual ground in the northern quadrants. Um, So, you know, that's the ritual ground out towards that uh, spring green area where you've got the Frank Lloyd Wright. Um, It includes, you know, the epic area, Verona, you know, all of those areas are interconnected. Uh, the The biggest thing there is, you know, in Madison area is going to be the Capitol building, uh, which is a replica of the Temple of Artemis. Um, Artemis just being another name for Astra, the principality. Um, but that's one of the biggest uh, temples there in that area. Uh, where they're going to sacrifice to Asherah. And and that's made in the the same style as D.C., right? Washington, D.C. Because, mo- yeah, most capitals uh, across the 50 states, they didn't, they didn't build the, ta- the, the capital to look just like D.C., but Madison did. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So, so what is, yeah, what does Wisconsin or Madison have as far as uh, deep underground military bases or I mean, you've already mentioned some of the tunneling, but is there any more detail you want to provide on that? You've got, I mean, you've got some of the submarine lines that um, stem from that main Chicago dumb base, um, you know, that run underground there. So a lot of the submarine base lines that are running through that area. Um, For them, like the main, you know, they're, other main hub was that that Chicago area, which is where, you know, the story is that Cleopatra and Anthony came in uh, to caves and caverns that were underground there. 
And that's where they set up the four Egyptian idols. So that's what they're considering Egypt or also transposing to Jerusalem because um, they'll mir- mirror cities um, internationally and, you know, name their high points. So that's one of their high points. You know, I think the Wisconsin areas were close enough where, you know, they were able, a lot of the high level people were able to live with their cover lives, yet be close enough to the desecrated ground and to all of the underground uh, walls that, you know, they, they basically use that Madison area kind of funneling a lot of energies um, you know, but they're close enough to all their ritual grounds and have spiritual gate access to those bases uh, through that area. Well, I'd be very interested in going through your course on learning about the gates and I think, um, and, and the land and all of that. I think that would be uh, a fascinating kind of um, connection to what Dr. Laura talks about with, with spiritual mapping and how, how she'll do, you know, research and, and, um, reconnaissance to, f- to figure things out, you know, look up old newspaper articles and, and figure out what happened in the past. And along with what you're talking about, and you mentioned too, some, some of your interviews about, uh, a lot of dumbs being underwater. I- is there anything in like the great lakes or anything like that? Yes. You have a massive, uh, base there, uh, between Lake Superior and, uh, Canada. Hmm. Also Lake Heron in Canada as well. It kind of extends through. So that's incredible, man. So close to home. Uh, It's just, it's incredible. I mean, just, you know, we're talking about these systems and the cabal, right? Like you mentioned, those five areas, uh, you know, that they use and um, just seeing how interconnected that, that this uh, satanic system is in every facet of life really and just counterfeiting everything god does um with that in mind like what what sort of infiltration or mixture have you learned is happening with like churches denominations where they're involved in satanism freemasonry and other apostasy like that when i was a child um i would strongly say at least seven out of every 10 people that I knew um, within, you know, my communities were brotherhood. So, you know, where would I say that's at now? Um, I would still say that's pretty close. And again, you're not going to have all high level people. Um, You know, it depends, you know, each community you're going to have, you know, people who are kind of just being, you know, initiated in, they're going to be, um, you know, entering those recruitment stages or phases for different things. They're going to be in it thinking, you know, this is a Christian organization and this is, you know, these people believe in God and, you know, they do great things for humanity. And, you know, I want to invest my money in this and I want to spend time with these people, the fellowship's great, you know, so they're going to be in it more for that community fellowship aspect, not knowing everything that's really behind it. Um, You know, you also have where, 
you know, kind of that intersect between childhood and adulthood where, you know, as people listen to my story, they're going to start to hear a lot of things that connect like, oh my gosh, I remember going through that in school too. And, you know, like I didn't even know it was part of the system or, you, you know, because you, you're basically going through the program, but you don't know that you're in a program. Um, it doesn't mean that everybody's, you know, mind controlled, um, you know, but it's, it's the beginnings of that where they, um, or work in the program. So an example of that is, you know, they'll test children in uh, preschool and kindergarten. So some of the things like I remember, you know, they used to pull out what they called the big parachute with all the colors. And they would do these games where you would stand around in a circle around May Day, you know, Hmm. (laughs) so um, you're standing around all these colored ribbons in a circle and you know, the parachute goes up. I remember like we had to try to like run underneath it without like having it fall on you. And then you're running out. Um, now what was interesting is the child that won that, you know, game who, who was able to do it. They don't tell you that later, you know, that child goes missing. And, you know, when I was growing up through that, like, I was like, well, what happened to that kid? And the story was just what kid? Hmm. Well, I mean, they literally made it seem like the kid never existed in the first place, but what did they do? They, you know, ritually killed that child on May day and, you know, always a little girl. Um, You know, then you have the May flagpole where they've got the pole and they'll have all these ribbons and teach you to dance around. You put flowers on your head and you're participating in a, you know, a May Day ritual and you don't even know that you're a part of that. Which which has ties to what? What is the significance of that? Um, that's part of their breeder programs that, uh, you know, girls are offered um, to deities as well as high level people, um, you know, for sexual exploitation. Um, it, you know, it gets into the sexual relics, which are required by Ashtaroth and Ball. So, so this um, is the Jesuit Catholic that you mentioned that's in charge of these programs? Um, is- you're going to have several, you're going to have all five departments. Okay. So, you know, your area could have one or two departments uh, governing that versus all five so, you know, in Utah, you're going to have more of the Mormon church, which is right. overseeing all the programs. Um, a lot of areas you're going to see a mix of the the Mason, the Jesuit Catholic, uh, that are the primary ones running those programs. And this connects, I was going to ask you at the beginning here, where these children that go to the two paths, the hierarchy or the... Um or fodder basically, right? Um, where they're coming from. So that some of them you mentioned in the past, they are born, grow up in these secret places. They have no birth certificate, no social security mm-hmm. number and all of that um, for supplying that. And then, yeah, maybe you just want to. Yeah. So a lot of that structure, like I've brought out about the Chicago area is that, you know, you would have the church, the Jesuit Catholic churches working in conjunction with the governments 
um, for that supply chain. So, you know, first you'd have the, you know, occultic abuse and programming happening within the Catholic church and between them and the military, you know, you really have those connections where our military is working with the church and, uh, the government is working with the church for that supply chain in community. So, um, you know, they would, um, supply the kids, they would, you know, these girls or boys would be basically prostituted out, uh, from the church to military law enforcement in the communities, um, which would cause damage. You know, some of these programs were so, you know, are so intense and horrific. What did it do? It mentally broke uh, these children. So, you know, from what I figured out, there's, you know, from the time World War II ended to the present day, you have about five generations of, of the program that have been run. So the first was like from the 40s to the 60s. Then you have from the 60s to the 80s. Then you have the 80s to the 2000s, which that that was my time frame. And then you have the 2000s to current. So maybe four, um, you know, I've been trying to figure out if they run it every 20 years to every or every 10 years kind of. But um, so somewhere in there, four to six of them. And so in that, you know, the first sets of programs were, really based off trauma-based programming. So, you know, what they would do is first, you know, they're, it's easiest to explain, like if you think of a file drawer. So just imagine a file cabinet, you've got, you know, four cabinets. The first thing they're going to do is they're going to connect those children to the four main Egyptian gods, Um, you know, Ra, Ma, O, and Set. So, you know, they're going to go in there. Now, how do they do that? This is one of those little things that people would go through in school and you don't even have any idea. They would get the kids to start singing and feeling, you know, where is the sound coming from in your body? So you would focus on the sounds, you know, oh, ma, ra, and set, and, you know, feel where those are resonating as you make those sounds. Well, in that, they're also connecting you to that spirit and you don't even know it. So then what they would do is they, you know, let's just say we'll pick, you know, the drawer for Ma or whatever, which would be Ashtaroth. And then, you know, they would do all these, like each file would be a major traumatic event in that child's life. And as the child is experiencing that trauma, they're also being connected to a whole nother set of demonic, uh, unclean spirits based on the seven deadly sins. So, you know, they're tainting your spirit. They're embedding a false glory at the same time, you know, they're connecting you to a spirit and, and you don't even know, but what it did was it, you know, it mentally broke a lot of children. So, you know, who then did they put over the mental health? Well, it was the very, people who were involved in, you know, the programming, uh, through the U S military with, with these kids anyway. Um, a lot of the girls would be chosen for the breeder programs 
through the Catholic Church. And then, you know, what would they do? They would adopt the babies out. Um, as the girls needed mental health, they would put it, you know, they began to put up mental health wards where these girls would live. Um, so you kind of had the same situation with the underground breeder programs where, you know, these girls were some of those that initially were in those breeder programs. They hit them underground. You have, um, you know, up to five generations that have continued to just have children for the system. Those children aren't documented, no birth certificate, no death certificate. They don't exist, but the system can do whatever they want with them, whether, you know, the majority of them are not brought up to the surface. Um, you know, they're kept down there in their underground cities and um, used and exploited. Um, they use them as workers under there as well. So, so if you were to kind of divide up the composites of where they're getting these children, you have the ones that basically are start there and end there more or less underground. You've got hundreds of thousands through, you know, CPS and, and other missing children, you know, you have missing children from the border, you have missing children from Haiti, you know, that would be another resource but then you're yeah, saying the disasters they create yeah. to go in and steal the children. Right. And then you've got, you've got willing families who are willing to sell their children into, is that what you're getting at with, with like someone in a Catholic church? I mean, they're, the family is willing or they're kind of unknowingly bringing their child into things. I think a lot of it was unknown. I think, you know, <clears throat> kind of how the, how the issue would be posed is that you have a teen girl or young girl that gets pregnant and then, you know, they're going to graciously help them find a good home for that child. You know, what were the beginnings of really what formed into the CPS? I think, you know, the Catholic church was doing it a couple generations ago, you know, through their adoption agencies, adopting out children um, that then were being exploited. Yeah, because through the foster care system, that's a huge way that they can move children around and in and out because they don't have the oversight and the guardianship in a lot of cases that by law they're supposed to have, right? Right. And, you you know, if they're adopted, it's considered that person's child. So then you don't have any of the auditing really going on, I think, usually past a year. Um you know, so how many brotherhood families are, you know, buying, selling, trading, purchasing children, whether it's in the United States or across country, um, you know, they're, they're choosing children that they're rearing up into the brotherhood based on, you know, their spiritual gifts or what they want to use that child for. Now, within that, we're not saying everything's bad because you do have good you know, you do have good Christian organizations. You do have good Christian families who are providing good homes for some of these kids. But um, it's also, you know, it's a structure that the system has tapped into and tainted. Yeah, man, we were just talking about this in our family this week about, I don't know if it was a recent story or, or decades ago, but yeah, um, 
you know, a, a teen girl gets pregnant and it's so frowned upon in society that oh, we're going to help you as the church. And they literally just take away the child and give it to another family. Now, I'm sure some of those, you know, children are still alive, grew up in a, a good family, although it was wrong what they did. But it sounds like that would be a perfect cover for what you're talking about, too. It is. Yeah. I think that there's been a lot of those situations where, and that's, you know, you got to remember like the system excels at that form of godliness. They make it look good. Um, So think about even, you know, our past former president, um, you know, we'll just say um, B.O. But, you know, I mean, their girls are adopted too. Yet Mm -hmm. we see on you know, materials, videos, laptop things that are coming out, um, we see those children being exploited. You know, literally there's pictures of, of them naked with the, you know, with the VPs or we'll say, you know, current person's son um, and, and drugs, you know. So it's like, what in the world did these girls you know, what was their life really like? How long, Yeah. you know, when did their exploitation start? And literally these were girls that were paraded as the stuff was happening. They were paraded before the public applauded, you know, everybody's like, Oh, what a great family, cute family. So good. Yet, you know, they make it look so good on the outside. But when we really, you know, lift up their skirts. We see that, you know, the exploitation and the Luciferian brotherhood operating right within our own high level government uh, families. Yeah. What would you say too, with like, I mean, the sound of freedom movie, I mean, that seems like that type of kidnapping and exploitation in terms of numerically it's probably a drop in the bucket compared to what we're talking about with these other programs. I mean, th- what happened in that movie, if it's, if it's, if it's a true story is the minority of how those things are children are trafficked. Right. Yeah, I, I believe it is the minority and I wish there would have been more that was brought out. I, I think that movie was, you know, great for the fact that it, it kind of gives an introduction. It gets people, um, you know, aware of the issue, but, you know, it only dealt with the international, Um, you know, that's happening in our own country. How many talent agencies are here, especially based out of California um, and, you know, New York areas, Um, you know, what's happening in our country that is very similar. And again, like you said, that's only one route, you know, they, they use talent agencies, uh, they use universities. Um, our, our public schools are one of the largest ways that children are being trafficked to the U S military and the sovereign military. Um, I'm going to be bringing out a bunch of stuff about that, uh, coming up, you know, the next few weeks here. Um, you know, how is it, how is it being done? And there's laws, there's laws about this that are, that are put in place that are meant to protect children. Yet those very laws are things that are enabling, um, you know, these schools and churches to be doing the exploitation without, 
um, you know, further observance. And one of those is, you know, the Child Protection Act that was put in place where, you know, it says that every volunteer has to go through background checks and other things, you know, you better believe that the system had their hand in that, that, you know, who are they making sure pass those tests? You know, they're making sure it's going to be people that will guard and protect the Luciferian information that if a child starts telling about what's really going on, you know, they're going to be able to control that. Um, and what information comes out. And, you know, we see a lot of that control. Um, They did the same thing with a lot of the projects and experiments where, um, you know, there was that monitoring and, you know, those who were doing the biofeedback of the children became the very people who are now providing mental health therapy. So, you know, how can they be involved with the programs through MIT Uh, Stafford Research Institute, the Aspen Foundation, you know, what were those organizations? I bring out my affidavit that those organizations really were Tavistock, which, you know, we know, you know, was used with the mental health and the soul torture of of hundreds across other countries. Um, But they came here to our country. They changed their names. Um, you know, the Aspen family is one of the, you know, biggest behind the scene brotherhood families that there is. Who's now, you know, coming up with all these companies with that name, hmm. you know, and how does it connect to the U.S. military and the programs going on with children there? So there's a lot of cross contamination in our communities that we're not aware of because these, you know, the brotherhood are masters at changing names. Yeah. And um, how can we discern in our churches, the people that we trust, the people we see on TV that invoke the name of God or read a psalm or, or, or say a prayer? Because you've talked a bit about it. I know Bill Schneblin has as well. You know, he, he was a Freemason and, and they would they would sing, you know, hymns and, and read from the Bible as they're opening things up. And, you know, even using Lord or God, but they're deliberately thinking and and talking about someone other than the true God. Yeah. You know, where it comes down to is that, you know, they can, they can, you know, use the terms, they can use the name of God, they can give you the scripture, Um, you know, they can even make it sound, you know, I think of some of these brotherhood people in seminaries and, you know, churches, pastors, they can get up there and give an amazing sermon. And, and, you know, it's where you want to cry out, yes, preach it, brother, you know, because they're saying all the right words that are touching your heart. But the one thing that they can't give you is they can't give you their experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, they can't tell you what their time or their day has been like with the Lord. Um, You know, those I've known who are are real Christians, like I think of, you know, as I got out of the system at age 10, you know, that was part of my struggle. Who do I turn to? Who really has a relationship with God? And as odd as it is, where the Lord led me to was my church library. 
And in there, the first book he led me to was one by Corrie ten Boom. She was a little Dutch woman, a clockmaker, and her and her family had helped, you know, get Jews out of um, out of Poland and stuff and hide them through that. Um, she and her family ended up, you know, getting arrested and spending time in the concentration camps. And after she got out, uh, the rest of her family members, the majority of them died in those concentration camps. But after Corey got out, she began to travel the world and preach the gospel. And, um, you know, her books were great because, you know, she talks about that relationship. She talks about those times she's wrestling with God. You know, like one time he told her to, uh, to uh, go with this woman who was a nurse and to go have lunch with her at her family's residence. But when she got there, like she had to walk up flat, you know, 10 flights of stairs. And she, at that time she was 80 years old, you know, and she's like, God, are you kidding me? Like, I can't do this. I can't walk up 10 flights of stairs. And she started to, you know, but by the time she got to the fourth or the fifth floor, you know, she's like, hanging on to the rail. And she's like, God, you know, I can't do this. I'm just going to have to go back down. But the Lord kept telling her to go all the way up um, the 10 floors. But you see that interaction with God, you know, that there's times the Lord corrects her. There's times the Lord speaks into her life and she has this relationship with God And that's what you don't get from them. Like if you really start to press, you know, and say, tell me about, you know, what is the Lord doing in your life this week? What scriptures did he speak to you? What revelations is he sharing with Mm -hmm. you? Uh, That's left out. They don't have any experience of God, um, you know, on a regular basis. So, you know, as I say that, you may get some where they've had selective experiences. Okay. You know, so, you know, that's what, when I'm looking for a church home, when I'm looking for, you know, individuals that I'm going to kind of be listening to, I'm going to be learning from them. I'm looking for what is their personal relationship with the Lord look like? Right. And, and that's how I tell, wow. you know, if, if they don't have one, you're not going to see fruit. You're not going to, you know, and fruit doesn't mean that they're perfect. You know, I look for those people who aren't afraid to admit when they've sinned or they've made mistakes. You know, they're like, man, I really messed up. Yes. You know, I, I, I hurt you. I offended you. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? You know, I'm going to look for those people that genuinely are trying to live in obedience to God. And, um, you know, are they being obedient to God? Sometimes, you know, the Lord asks us to do things that maybe don't necessarily look like what we would think things would look like. You know, like I remember one time... um, you know, I, w- I went to a park for lunch and this was way back in my, you know, I'll say late teenage, early 20 years. Um, but I had gone to a park for lunch and as I was there, you know, I was just praying. And um, when I was getting about ready to leave, I see this little elderly man sitting on a bench. 
And as I'm walking by, you know, starting to walk by, the Lord says, go talk to him and and share the gospel. And I was like, well, I really don't have time. You know, I got to get back to work. Now, here's the funny thing about the not having time. Um, You know, I'm Scandinavian and German. Our time frame is, you know, usually 15, 20 minutes ahead of schedule is on time, right? right? So the Lord's sitting there like, you've got time, you know? And I'm sitting there like, I don't have time. I'm going to be late, you know? Um, God forbid I end up at work right when I'm supposed to be there, right? But um, so I tried to argue with God and it was like, I don't have time, you know? And, and literally my feet stopped, like my feet froze in that spot on the sidewalk and the Lord would not allow me to move in any direction, but towards that man. And, you know, it was like, God, like, is he even going to respond? Is he going to pray with me? Does he want to hear the gospel? Right. I mean, I would, I argued through it all. Finally, you know, I went, I sat down and was like, hi, you know, I know you don't know me, but the Lord wanted me to share something with you. And I shared the gospel. He didn't want to pray. So it was like, okay, you know, so you're sitting there like, Lord, he didn't even want to like pray. He didn't want to come to you. So what was the purpose of this? But what was the purpose of it? The Lord simply was asking me to follow and walk in obedience that day. The outcome was not the purpose. The outcome was you know, am I willing to follow the Lord in those acts of obedience when he asked me to? Yeah. And you're also growing in discernment as to his voice versus maybe your own or right. So yeah, you're, you're, you're opening the door a crack and going, I think that's you. I'm going to step out. And I love that. And I also love just how you uh, said to tell the difference between someone who is maybe praying to a different God, but saying all the right words, um, that yeah. eyeball to eyeball, getting to know one another transparency. Um, and I, I put into my notes here while you were talking hidden in hierarchy in the traditional church, because the traditional way that we've done church for 1700 years is you have a few people up front mm-hmm. and it's, it's organized like a theater with all the seats facing the front. We're not, eyeball to eyeball most of the time getting to know one another and you can put on a show and a front pretty easy up on that stage. Yeah. Yeah, The other, you know, the other important thing with that is, you know, is that, that cover, that cover is meant to be that form of godliness. It's meant to look good. And there's this air of perfectionism with it, which really, what's the stem behind that? It's pride. Um, And when you look at that at a deeper level, you know, they believe that they are gods. They don't need God because they've perfected. They, you know, know exactly how they're supposed to live and, and they live exactly like they're supposed to live. You know, they can, you know, the Sanhedrin were experts at that. They took, you know, the words of God, they, they, held to that law of God so tightly, you know, and interpreted as they would. But what did they leave out? They left out the relationship. Yeah. So in that, you know, what does scripture say? That he who says he has no sin, you know, is a liar. 
because we all have sin. So that's another area where I found you can tell the difference. And a lot of people experiences abuses by the church in that process, that sin process and the process of forgiveness and sanctification. Um, you know, the churches that I grew up with had that form of godliness. You know, they were Southern Baptists. You know, as my mom uh, got saved, we began to go to the Baptist and Southern Baptist churches. So even the conservative Baptists. Um, but they would get you in this cycle because you would always be afraid of of sin, you know, and every time you sinned, it brought you to that place where once again, you're begging God for salvation. And, you know, you're like, man, I messed up. God isn't going to love me. God isn't, you know, going to accept me. You know, I got to once again, be at the altar begging my way in because, you know, God knows how imperfect I am. Am I ever going to get there? You know, I mean, we've, we know what the new life in Christ is supposed to look like, but how many of us really feel like we have that? Hmm. You know, I went through that for years where I never felt like I had that new life in Christ. And, you know, it's really because what we have is based off of that perfectionism and that form of godliness. And so in that, you know, some of the things the Lord showed me was that they don't, um, you know, really they're not basing their faith on the full work of Christ. It goes back to works. You've got to work out your salvation, which scripture does say that, but They get so focused on the you working it out that you stop working it out with Jesus with Mm. you, you know? And um, so, you know, there's a lot of condemnation. Yes. And that condemnation leads to depression and oppression. Why is that? Because we keep dwelling and entertaining our sins. We allow the enemy to keep accusing us for those sins, even after we've confessed them. And we're not stepping out in that authority of our our restored state of righteousness. So that can be another thing is that, you know, if you've had one of those periods of time through the church, if you're not seeing that process of restoration where, you know, you confess your sin, um, you know, it may be you're confessing it as well to people in your church, your pastor or someone And if you don't see that restoration afterwards and that forgiveness, um, you know, hightail it out of there because they're basing everything off of condemnation and accusations. They're not really living and operating in that new life based off of the full work of Christ. Um, You know, it's his work, not ours. He's the one, you know. How the Lord restored that for me was he kept having me for, it was like a month, uh, actually three months. He had me reading in Romans six and I got to the point where, you know, the last day I was like, God, if you tell me to read this chapter again, I'm going to rebel tomorrow. (laughs) Like I'm not going to read it because, you know, it was like, I'm not getting anything out of this. Well, it was that morning that as I sat down to read it, the Lord all of a sudden, you know, highlighted that verse. If I have died with Christ, I have been raised to new life with him. And, 
you know, in that moment, like I all of a sudden saw myself in that grave and I saw myself being raised up and I was like, oh my gosh, it's a one-time deal. Every time I sin, I I don't go back in that grave with Christ. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I died once. I died once with him and, and then he raised me to new life. So it's like, okay, like all I have to do is live now and live out that sanctifying process. Like he knows when I died with him, he knew every past sin, every present sin, every future sin. Mm -hmm. So you still have to go through that confession in the sanctifying process, but the major work of it, Christ has yes. already done. You know, it's interesting as uh, a verse came to mind that I've never till this moment connected to what you're saying. It's appointed unto man to die once and then the judgment. Yep. Yep. Think of that in light of what you just said. Christ's death applied to us once. And what is our judgment now? Declared righteous. Wow. That's and right. there are so many tens of thousands of Christians who are dealing with what you're saying. They beat themselves up. They have a false form of guilt beyond, okay, yeah. the right, you know, Holy Spirit conviction after something. But then it's there days later. Or they're brought up in that legalistic system. And um, I just wrote down, you know, a false form. There, There is a flavor of Christianity that's very popular with that belittles mankind in the way of trying to hold God up. And they describe us as, you know, wretched worms and, you know, nothing good. It's a false gospel. It is because, and they're trying to make God look so gracious by pushing us down. Yeah. Or the moment you want to step out in that authority, they begin to say, you know, that you're prideful. Right. Um, that you're not humble enough or pious enough, um, which isn't true. You know, it's like if the Lord has lifted up our heads and he's called us into that place where we can walk in confidence with him, you know, I mean, he literally as sons and daughters. He inv- invites us to come and to rule and reign with him yeah. in his throne room. And that's not just once we die or pass from this earth. It's now like, you know, we're called to manage his house and to govern his house and his courts. So are we going to do that with him? Or are we going to remain under that deception of a false gospel Hmm. that suppresses who we really are? You know, we are the sons of the living God. Yeah, We've been given the full measure, the full authority of Christ. That authority is over every principality, over every power, every authority, structure that has set itself up in the earth. Uh, We have the authority to remove wickedness, to remove the yoke of oppression that is over people and communities. You know, what greater endeavor is there than to serve the Lord and walk in that obedience? Yeah. But that's the problem is that most of us, you know, once we know The question is really, are we willing to walk in that obedience? Are we willing to, you know, to count the cost and to do what we need to do uh, to do his will? Yeah. Uh, Most people are not willing to. They don't want to give up, you know, certain things in their lives, whether it's sin. Most of the time, 
you know, 90% of the time, that sin, the thing they don't want to give up, deals with, you know, sexual things, the pleasure of self, uh, the pleasure of money, and, you know, pleasure itself. So, yeah. yeah. You know, um, it's a, um, you know, just thinking about how God sees us, even while we were sinners, you know, we're, we're not a piece of garbage that when we when we become saved, now we have this, we're still garbage on the inside. And now we have this veneer of Christ, like every creation, human creation of God, he just longs to have a relationship for with, and we're so valuable to him. And it's just, it's so damaging when you, when you hear people trying to hold up how good God's grace is by making us seem like we're just, we're, we're awful. And the only thing good about us is, is God. And it's, it's a, it's a terrible way of, of viewing his image bearers, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Um, I wanted to touch on a bit, a little bit about um, the counterfeit cleansing that you talked about, um, reading Psalms, confession of sins prior to, you know, having a ritual inviting demons and fallen angels to be a part of it. It's just, it's so counterfeit how they're using God's spiritual laws in order to operate in this. And, um, I think I'm I'm paraphrasing, but basically you said something like approaching knowledge, right? A desire for knowledge. And that goes back to the garden of Eden and and Nimrod and, and the origin of Freemasonry, this, this hidden knowledge, but they're approaching that knowledge and spiritual laws, but they're cutting God out. Right. So God created, like you've talked about, you know, the power of, of vibrations and sound and different things that God made all of these incredible things that, that work healing and do all this stuff. But, but the occult system and the satanic system is to use those things for their own end for uplifting mankind and cutting God out. So maybe just talk a bit about that and, and kind of that, maybe that example or two of like the counterfeit cleansing right before a a ritual. Yeah, I really break a lot of that down in my courses, uh, the foundation of kingdom living and the rise of the righteous. Um, I also have a great series um, that is uh, on kingdom living with jesse.com that it's a threefold series called idols in your pantry, cleaning out your pantry and the courts of heaven. Mm. So in that, you know, we really break down, um, you know, kind of that structure, what the enemy's doing with it. How does he go about building those altars and the false places of worship uh, that are based off those seven deadly sins? So as you get into that, you know, the enemy works to build that false um, replication of the Holy Spirit or God in our lives. And, you know, really it's connected to those seven deadly sins. Um, So... You know, that, that false glory, I think, you know, as we look at that, you know, they do, they use, you know, the the occultists are skilled um, in the word. They know scripture better than most Christians. They're going to use that word because, you know, really what does scripture say the word is? It's a, it's a sword. It's, you know, an offensive weapon. 
So, you know, they will use that weapon. Um, they will do all sorts of fasting, cleansing their bodies, um, you know, purifying themselves, setting themselves apart before they engage with some of the major principalities. Um, you know, they're going to cry out to God to save them. Um, you know, I had, you know, my proctor where, you know, before every night before she met with Lucifer, um, to have their nightly conversation, she would be crying out, you know, Oh God, you know, forgive me. Um, and you know, why, you know, how did God answer hear that prayer when knowing that she was going to turn around and sin, Mm. you know, yet they, they know that if you don't ask forgiveness, if you don't forgive others, that God won't forgive you either. And that then gives the enemy legal ground and permissions to do certain things. So it's interesting how they at a spiritual level operate, um, within a heavenly kingdom, um, you know, jurisdiction in regards to those authorities. Um, You know, they know how to make the land unclean. They know how to also cleanse things within themselves so that, you know, they're not, the enemy doesn't have a way to necessarily get away with everything he wants to do um, in their lives, you know, so they become masters at asking for forgiveness, even though, you you know, I mean, that's part of the duality of it. Are they really sorry at some level that they're committing their sins? Well, they are, you know, they don't want to have the consequences. They don't want to have to um, have the horrors or the, you know, different things that can happen to them because of the legal ground they're giving these demonic principalities. Yet in that, what's kind of interesting is that, you know, as they cry out, you know, it will protect them from the hordes of unclean spirits for a time, but really, you know, they're not fully protected. You know, they they believe that they are, you know, they make their alliances, they, you know, will align with more, you know, more and more powerful demons to protect them from the hordes of unclean spirits. But at the end of the day, there's still that deep bondage um, to the taskmaster, which is Lucifer. And, you know, the way that he works the system is that, you know, every evil that they do um you know, there's so much freedom within that evil, you know, the quota system that the enemy has are requirements of sin. You know, you're required to sin and you're required to document it. Um, you know, just saying that you did it is not going to be enough. There needs to be eyewitnesses it, or it needs to be filmed something. Wow. Um, you know, the enemy's going to find out and your witnesses are not just going to be other humans. There's, you know, There's going to be a testimony of, you know, even demonic spirits testifying that, yes, you did what you were supposed to do. So you get to choose your sins based on those seven deadly sins. So, you know, let's say you like to eat out. You think, ah, you know, what could be really bad with, you know, eating out? That's the least of the sins, you know, or it could go the opposite way where instead of overeating, you're under eating, mm-hmm. which you think is healthier. You're going to start doing all these fasts and you think, huh, 
you know, this isn't bad. You know, how is this sin? Um, yet in that the enemy is still creating bondages and, you know, pretty soon there's going to be bigger and bigger demands where, you know, the overeating can get beyond gluttony to cannibalism or consuming of blood or, you know, even cursing of ashes that are going to be put into food or pharmacia. Um, you know, so there's things that it just continues to grow worse and worse. You know, one time it may be, you know, that you decide you're going to hate your neighbor. Um, you think, oh, that's not going to be bad. Well, then you have to start harassing your neighbor. Then you have to lose your neighbor, their job, their income, attack their property, attack their children so that their children are fighting and rebelling and, you know, their, their land and household are becoming unclean. Then you're going to have to tempt the neighbor's wife, you know, and it keeps getting worse and worse until outright, you know, you need to drive out your neighbor or kill him. You know, so the demands always grow in those quotas, no matter what you choose. And you can't ever go back. It doesn't ever go back to the beginning. Once you start down that line of sin, uh, the enemy's demands for you just get more and more and more. Um, a lot of the high level people, you know, initially will try to get around the blood sacrifices by offering their own bodies and their own blood. But then it gets to the point where the enemy's demanding so much blood that now you start to have epilepsy or hmm. seizures or other health conditions because, you know, or you're having issues with cutting, which is causing an oppression. Um, you know, so the demands always grow. Is this, uh, when you're speaking of these demands and quotas, are you speaking primarily for those who are? occultist initiates and, and in these systems of, of Luciferian worship and so on, are you, or are you saying across the board, this is what Satan does to yeah, across, the, across the board, those in the Luciferian brotherhood uh, from, you know, initiation through, um, you know, them taking their positions uh, even through their position until the day they die uh, there are quotas and demands that they okay. have to fulfill. Um, one thing that you were talking about is, uh, well, in one of your interviews, you were talking about the way that people open up themselves to the spiritual world. You know, it could be through different rituals or or drugs or uh, things like that. Um, I thought that was really interesting because you know, when we think of the Bible saying we're spiritually dead before we come to Christ, I just thought it's really interesting how um, people who are not believers are able to connect spiritually in counterfeit ways and activate their spiritual side. So it seems to me like we almost have to redefine what's being spiritually dead is biblically, because it's not like, you know, if we're body, soul, and spirit, if we're, if we're tripartite, right? Um, it's, it's not like that one, that one of the three is like totally dead. It's, there's a way that it's activated, right? Because when, when someone who is counterfeiting God's ways and they're trying to connect in occultist ways and in Luciferian ways, 
they're able to activate their spirit, right? That's not their soul or their body necessarily. So how, how would you define like spiritual deadness and yet being able to do that apart from God? Well, you know, how I describe that best is thinking about the resurrection. You know, what do we have um, through that process? You know, there's there's a cleansing that happens for the body and the soul in, in coming to that place of death. Um, you know, scripture says that the blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So, you know, before that, that death in Christ, we're in that state of unrighteousness, meaning that there isn't that relationship or fellowship with God. Um, you know, our soul, our body is seen as dead um, because we don't have that connection to the living God, even though he'll reach out, he's trying to connect. But what you have then happen through that death and resurrection is there's a transformation um, you know, our spirit, our body um, is joined with Christ. And, you know, kind of the easiest imagery to imagine is that, you know, that's the part where your body's glorified. You have the glory of the Lord combining your physical and your spiritual bodies, making it one. Up until then, you know, really, you know, your spirit and soul can be dwelling in your body, or, you know, if you're astral projecting, or you may have other spirits that are coming in using your body at the same time as your soul and spirit are there, suppressing your authority in possession or oppression. Um, you know, so I think that's the easiest way to see it is just one is without that glory of God's presence the other is in the glory of God's presence. Yeah. Okay. So, so in that sense, even prior to Christ, an unbeliever has a body, a soul, a spirit. However, yes. the spirit is dead in the sense that Jesus, the Holy Spirit is not living within us. And so it's, I guess it's, it's well, almost like. You a, don't have that glory of God yeah. that you're in. Uh, which is life, you know, scripture says that he is life. So you don't have life, um, but you are still a created being, but you haven't come to that place of having life yet. Right. Wow. Um, all right. So I have a hypothetical that I've been asking guests lately, and uh, I, I love asking it because it gives everyone answers this differently. So first question is, does Satan think he can actually win? He knows the book of Revelation better than us. He knows the lake of fire is part of it. Um, that's his end. Does, does he think he can prove God a liar and make that not come true? Or does he know his end is coming and he's just going to try to burn down the house and, and corrupt as much of God's image bearers as he can? Um. From my experience, you know, I would say confidently that he fully believes that he will usurp the throne of God. Wow. So that's that's his all or his goal, his aim. Um, you know, he believes that he's going to get all the spiritual gates open. 
Uh, he's been preparing an army, which, you know, he can't get his demonic hosts uh, through those spiritual gates because the Lord casts them down out of heaven. So how does he do it? He's, you know, trying to create a loophole where he has those demonic hosts or has humans hosting his demonic generals. And he can get, you know, the humans with his demonic generals through those gates. That's his goal. But we know what scripture says, you know, in the book of Revelations, the Lord tells him that he will meet him in the valley of Armageddon. And, uh, you know, there the Lord says he will slay him with the breath of his mouth. Uh, they don't get a toe into heaven. They don't get a single, you know, being into heaven. So that's where the Lord will deal with it. So we know the, you know, the outcome already, as you said, and yeah. that's what will happen. Well, that's good. Yeah, I've I've gotten so many different answers. I just love to see what people's perspective is. If he actually thinks he's going to win, or if he's just trying to, yeah, wreck wreck God's world and his and his creation on his way out. But um, maybe in the second part of that question that I ask is. Um, you know, why not just beat God on a technicality, right? So if like Revelation says one world government, one world religion, you know, all these things, why not just tell your uh, your Luciferian brotherhood, hey, let's go a different path. Like I'm doing enough evil right now in 2023. Let's just kind of keep it status quo and not, not, not push it to a head and not build this one world government. Because if I do that, I've proved Revelation wrong. I think, you know, it kind of goes back to even Genesis where, um, you know, you have that imagery where he says, if you, you know, will you really die? Um, you know, you won't die. You'll be like God. Hmm. Uh, so that's, you know, that pride, that premise of rising up as God's ruling things themselves, that, you know, is the core of the sin. So everything that we see revolves around that where, you know, even that relationship with Israel and God, where, you know, all throughout the Old Testament, we see Israel rejecting God. You know, literally he spoke to them directly. He led them a cloud by day, a fire by night. And what do they say when God speaks to them directly? Don't speak to us. We, we only want you to speak to Moses you know, speak to the prophets. Don't, don't directly talk to us. Your voice is too great. We can't handle it. At the same time, they're crying out for a king. You know, we're not happy with Moses. You know, Moses speaks to us your words and it terrifies us. So don't, you know, we don't want to hear what Moses has to say. We want an earthly king. You know, somebody who's going to be more military minded, somebody who's going to lead us in that way, someone in the flesh, right? So, I mean, think about that. They they reject God personally. They reject his prophets. They reject his priests. They say, you know, we want that Messiah. We want a king. God says, fine, I'll give you one. The king comes in the flesh, Jesus Christ. What did they do? They reject him. No, this isn't our king. You know what, God, forget it. We're going to make our own, right? So, you know, I mean, literally, they're still going off all the prophecies for the Messiah, but they're they're trying to raise up their own king in the flesh. And that's really what it's all about. You know, it's about that re outright rejection of God, where they're raising up their own um, 
raising up their own God. Yes. The Antichrist. Yeah. And like you said, building an army too. He's doing it with, you know, Nephilim mothers, breeding programs, you know, um, that's why we call the show the days of Noah. He's doing the same type of breeding again, but then also yeah. getting humans to, to buy into his agenda. Well, too. And getting people, you know, yes. you know, that's why one of the main symbols in the Luciferian system is the cross. Um, that became the sign that they declared, you know, in this sign, we shall conquer. It became, you know, Lucifer's sign of conquering. Um, and in that, you know, how many Christians is he, you know, people who authentically believe that they love God, how many is he deceiving into his lies, you know, trying to raise up to proclaim, you know, the end time agenda is to raise up that one world religion and the worship of the beast and to get people to declare that that beast is God, Um you know, so that's kind of how he's working it. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Jesse, for your time. Um, maybe just wrap up a little bit about some of your ministry, um, spiritual warfare teachings that you have. You you touched on some, you know, your website and some of the different classes and things that you have. Um, all that sounds really fascinating. I definitely want to look into into those things. So. Yeah, definitely. Um, and for those interested too, so I do courses that are available online. I also travel and do uh, workshops. So right now I've got the Beautifully Adorned workshop um, that's happening in that. That workshop, you know, is really, we go through a lot of that we've talked through today. You know, how do we know what principalities, um, you know, we may have been through the system unknowingly attached to. Um, and if that's the case, how do we deal with those? How do we break those attachments? Um, you know, if the system has set up those false glories connected to the seven deadly sins, how do we break all that and get cleansed from that and, and then restore that state of righteousness and walking uprightly? So, we cover all that. And in the workshop, we really go through step-by-step um, step how to do that. Uh, one of the most powerful parts of that workshop, um, the Lord had told me that, you know, he said, my people need to understand that the moment they cried out to me in their sin or in their traumas, uh, when sin and offenses was being committed against them, in the moment they cried out to me, he, he heard and he said, and I cleanse them from all unrighteousness. So, you know, he knows that when, you know, we've been engaged in things, there's moments where we cry out where we're like, God, I don't want to be doing this. I'm sorry. You know, and in those moments, he cleanses us. And so, you know, he told us to do a foot washing. So, you know, in that we talk to people about, you know, receiving that cleanness from the Lord and understanding that he has made you clean. You can find my courses on kingdomlivingwithjesse.com as well as the coaching sessions that I do. Um, that's under the coaching session and you'll find those under land assignments one and two. Um, you have to take the first one before you can go to the second. They kind of build off each other. Um, in those, we break down, you know, how do you figure out, you know, 
the principalities as well as the brotherhood that are operating in your area? Uh, how do you find their strongholds in the places of w- wickedness? Once you're aware of those things, um, how do you tear those down and how do you begin to build for the kingdom of God in that area? Uh, So we get into a lot of details with that and have a lot of people who have been doing prayer strategies um, and taking back their communities, their countries. We've got people from all over the world who come for that. Uh, So we've had Sweden, Australia, the UK, uh, Germany. so the Lord's been moving powerfully in that. Um, so Kingdom Living with Jesse is the first website. You can access my courses, my books, uh, weekly shows that I do um, on there. And then um, the other one is illuminatethedarkness.com. Uh, that's our ministry side where um, you know we support champions, veterans, and survivors, those who are whistleblowers against primarily the Luciferian Brotherhood. Um, So if you'd like to give, you can give on that site to them. Uh, We also have where you can send um, your donations by mail. I just ask, please, if you have a specific place you want it to go or a specific group, make sure you mark that, you know, champions, veterans, or survivors. And you can send that to Illuminate the Darkness, P.O. Box 10443, Fargo, North Dakota, 58106. So with that, you know, our primary goal for them is that, you know, I believe everybody um, should be able to have their rent, be able to have their household needs, emergency needs like vehicles, medical, uh, get help with that. What we have happened with a lot of those who go against the Luciferian Brotherhood and become whistleblowers is that, you know, the enemy starts to cut off every single avenue stream that they can go through. Um, Many of them, their lives are at risk, so they can't just go and apply for food stamps or, you know, that just becomes a way the enemy will start to monitor them and uh, sometimes will try to literally take them out. So we try to provide another way. uh, So at least, you know, their rent, their bills, uh, their household needs are met every month. And, you know, we were selective with who we support for that. Uh, most of the people that we choose to support, it's more of a long-term situation um, where, you know, they're in a position where they're not going to be able to get a job. They're not going to have another way uh, to have income for them and their family. And, uh, you know, we're there for the long haul to help them. So, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jesse, and um, all of your your insight and everything. And uh, we appreciate it. And um, if uh, if we could do it again sometime, I would love to. Uh, I'd love to ask uh, more about your ministry and, um, you know, thoughts on the Antichrist. You know, what, what the day and age we're living in, you know, we're, we're born for such a time as this. And, uh, yeah, it's a privilege to just to get to partner with people like yourself and, um, and help expose the darkness, right? Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. So thank you so much. Thank you.